Hey, everybody. We're here today with Dr. Armin from Germany, who started his career by working in several hospitals and labs in Germany. He went on to do a lot of laboratory medicine before founding and featuring Armin Labs all across the world. Many of you are familiar with this lab, Armin Labs. In fact, our first Lyme patient Rich and I ever encountered got diagnosed through Dr. Armin and his labs over in Germany. He serves over 150 countries through his lab. He has over 500 tests he performs daily for the Lyme community. He's also a member of the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society and also a member of the International Lyme and Associated Disease Education Foundation as well. So Dr. Armin helps educate other doctors and also helps put sound science-based information out there to the community. So Rich, can you give a Dr. Armin a really, really warm welcome from our Tick Bootcamp community? Yeah, so Dr. Armin Schwarzbach, we are really excited to have you and it's been a long time coming uh, as, the, as the founder of the premier Lyme disease lab in the world, uh, we've really wanted to and been very anxious to have you on the podcast, but it's taken four years before we could finally get together with you. And as Matt had shared with our listeners during the introduction, our very first guest actually had been diagnosed from your lab. And from that point forward, we've sort of coveted a, you know, an interview with you, but we finally have gotten there. So Dr. Armin, thank you for joining us on the Thick Bootcamp podcast. Yeah, thank you, Rich. Thank you, Matt, uh, having me today here. So I'm so happy uh, to help you for your community and give information what you want from my side. So Dr. Armin, why don't you give us uh, a little information about your background? Matt did give a brief introduction, but it was very, very limited. And you have a much more, uh, I think, um, a, a very strong, strong background. So why don't you first talk to us about, uh, about where you grew up and what was driving you towards a career as a healer in the uh, medical community? Yeah, uh, it's a longer story. As you know, I'm now in this field 20, over 20 years. Um, so I started with tick tests um, 2000. Um, I think that was not so common in the world to test the tick for Borrelia burgdorferi. We didn't know anything about the co-infections that time. And in 2005, interestingly, I diagnosed a multiple sclerosis patient with a special test. It's named the Elispot test in the from gamma release assay. And um, the doctors, they treated this patient sitting in a wheelchair, blindness on the left eye, 40 years old, um, fatigued, and so sensitivity problems, um, nearly dying. They said it's multiple sclerosis and spinal fluid and everything was negative that time. And the patient came into one of my presentation. I, I, was, I was not so um, experienced in that time, 2004, 2005, so 20 years ago. I learned later on from, from Joe Boroscano and from Horowitz a lot about this differentials, uh, co-infection. And the patient came to me and said, oh, I, I have multiple sclerosis. And, but but to, you talked about maybe I have Lyme disease and neuroboliosis. I said, no, no, no. Uh, multiple sclerosis cannot be. Um, I'm a traditional doctor, educated medical doctor from University of the 80s. And um, as you mentioned, internal medicine. And I said, no, it could not be Lyme disease. Uh, why should you have Lyme disease? And then I did the first time this specific test and the test was positive and the antibodies completely negative. And then um, I didn't treat that patient. Um, I, I, I did services with a huge laboratory like Quest and LabCorp doing, and uh, it was a different lab. I was the COO for 300 employees. I, I was a traditional doctor at that time. And uh, I recommended a doctor treat this patient with rosefin, which is an antibiotic, and the patient got cured. I, I cured a multiple sclerosis patient in 2005. I said, oh, 
what's going on. My, I, I said to myself, I worked in neurology, I work in telemedicine, I'm a medical doctor. You cannot cure a multiple sclerosis patient, patient coming out from the wheelchair, uh, going back to work 40 years old. For, for me, it was sensation. And then the newspaper came in Germany and it was spread around um, Germany, that case. And then, yeah, maybe that was the start of my giving up all of my features before, all of my work before coming into the field um, of Lyme disease. And now I'm absolutely convinced that not all patients with multiple sclerosis uh, suffer from Lyme disease, but some of them. So um, you need to check all of these multiple scores patients for Lyme disease. And the spinal fluid, maybe I mentioned that or, uh, a little, uh, is not sufficient enough uh, to do a spinal tap and to say, oh, I exclude Lyme disease, uh, I exclude neuroborrelios. That's absolutely a mistake. So I said to myself, we have system failures. Stop all of your uh, former work, high risk, do something new, go to ILATS. ILATS was a little group, 50 uh, attendees that time. Um, and uh, now I'm sitting here and 20 years experience, uh, looking back nearly 20 years, just doing it's a full time job, you know, you cannot do it to say, Oh, I do a little Lyme disease in my laboratory, my clinic. It, it's so interesting, you can help so many patients, not just with multiple sclerosis. That is such an exciting story and a, and a great origin story that I think our community would really love. I mean, we, we have many, many folks who, um, who respond to our social media uh, when we when we share that in many cases people are misdiagnosed with multiple sclerosis when in fact they have when in fact they have Lyme disease and that's the that's the experience that changed the course of your career and and caused you to become a functional medical doctor who specializes in testing and treating Lyme disease and that is really uh, really a cool origin story but let's walk back before that part of the origin story, because you have a very strong educational uh, foundation for what brought you to that experience where you were uh, treating um, patients in, in the early 2000s. Uh, first, why don't you talk to us about um, your early studies where you received your PhD in 1992? Yes, um, I was a military soldier. I served military army professionally two years together with American soldiers. There was the um, the iron borderline, you know, that time maybe in the early 80s, one young man. And then I didn't know what to study. I, I Then I decided for biochemistry. I studied a little pharmacy. I worked for Aventis, a huge company in, in science. But that was not sufficient enough. So something was missing to me. And then I decided uh, to do uh, medicine. And this is six years study minimum in Germany at a good university. Uh, but Lyme disease didn't exist that time. You know, uh, and it was not teached. Uh, <laughs> nobody knew about Lyme disease in the uh, 80s. You know, it, it was the time Willy Burgdorfer came. Yeah. And then um, I was always interested in laboratory tests that time because um, my whole life, I, I, I'm a laboratory man, you know, from the beginning, early 80s, now 40 years, I'm laboratory uh, uh, doing clinical chemistry, biochemistry chemistry and so and microbiology um, but I did this PhD in endocrinology that was the first worldwide tradiumune assay for human gastric inhibitory polypeptide a little peptide in the gut so I have also some experience in, in science in, in uh, developing test systems um, but that was all not sufficient enough and later on I decided to go to a 
medical clinic to a hospital um, because I, I said to myself, you need to learn something about medicine. It, it doesn't make sense to just to work in laboratory. I'm a medical doctor. I want to see patients to learn about heart attacks, strokes. Um, and I had, a, I had really good luck that time. Um, I work in oncology. So I did cancer treatment with chemotherapies. I did the same time nephrology. I did gastroenterology um, and also cardiology. And I had uh, the best time also in infectious diseases. So um, I was the doctor responsible for infections. And that time, you remember back 90, early 80s, 90s, HIV infections, AIDS, that was uh, problematic. And I think we come later to this model with the three eyes, um, where I can tell you about that, how to diagnose and treat Lyme patients, give you some more treatment options, diagnostic options. So I'm coming also from uh, treating AIDS patients. I treated them. I diagnosed malaria. I diagnosed uh, salmonella. I diagnosed Yersinia. I diagnosed hepatitis B, C, uh, C didn't exist, H. pylori. I was actively treating them with antibiotics. And interestingly, in the early 90s, 1990, um, we had a sensation. Uh, we had this patient with this gastric cancer, uh, the gut cancer. You remember back, uh, we, we could not rescue them. We had this um, patient with gastritis, uh, with bleeding. We, we could not rescue them. Um, and then came the H. pylori, Helicobacter pylori. That was a bacteria. It, it was sensation. This bacteria, this pathogen can survive in the gut. Is so acid. Yes, it can survive. And now we know it's also resistant. And that was a time I was really fascinated about infections, infectious diseases to eradicate H. pylori this pathogen and then the patients all better, better, better. And said, wow, wonderful. Uh, that was a tremendous success. But again, Lyme disease didn't exist. We never checked patients for Lyme disease. Nowadays, I would say I treated also multiple sclerosis, um, uh, fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis, chronic fatigue. Uh, but nowadays, I would say um, I misdiagnosed a lot of them 30 years ago without knowing because it was not in the mainstream medicine. It was not teach. It was a young disease, unfortunately. A lot of doctors, they cared more about HIV infections, Freddie Mercury died, you know, all of these stories of the, of the 90s, 80s, 90s. So Lyme never was um, in, our, uh, in our brain. We were not teach that way. Right. So let me just summarize quickly for our listeners. Um, so you, you have a PhD, which is how you began uh, your career in the, in the uh, medical arena. You then went on to get a you became a medical doctor, you got a, an MD. Uh, and then after you, after you uh, earned your, your, your PhD and your MD, you also went on and, and achieved a, an additional degree as a specialist of laboratory medicine. So you had this very diverse um, foundation of PhD, MD, and then of course, the, uh, the specialist in laboratory medicine. And while you were earning your various accreditations uh, in the educational arena, you were also treating a number of different patients in first in the arena of endocrinology, immunology, and, and then ultimately the laboratory sciences. So you had a very, very strong educational foundation before you found yourself uh, treating people with Lyme disease in the early 2000s. 
Exactly. That's uh, the way in Germany. It's um, and some, a few other countries. You need to be a medical doctor to get the qualification. Five, six years also you need in Germany um, to be a laboratory doctor. The second qualification. And my, also I'm a little qualified in internal medicine. So <laughs> I could discuss with cardiologists and so gastroenterologists and so this is not um, every doctor can do that in the world. Normally, laboratory leaders are biochemistry or biologists. You know, um, they don't know about medical. They don't see the patient. So I have both sides. And for me, it's so important to bring laboratory uh, very close to the patients uh, from the differentials, from the symptoms, using laboratory tests, coming to diagnose, and then which treatment is needed for which patient for which infections. This is the differential. It's so important to me. Let's talk a little bit more about the uh, organizations and the foundations that you're associated with, because Matt did share with you, because most of our listeners are from the US, but not all of our listeners. We have actually a very large following in Europe as well, that you're not only um, associated with ILADS, um, which is the International Lyman Associated Diseases Society and their educational arm, but you're also affiliated with the German uh, Borreliosis Society and the Swiss Association for Tick-Borne Diseases, and and I needed I'm going to need your help with this. The um, Austral-Asian Integrative Medicine uh, Association, uh, where you've also served in you know various um, organizations, both in the U.S. and in um, and in Europe. So, can you talk to us a little bit about? what inspired you to become active in so many both American and European uh, medical organizations? Mm, I like USA. I like Europe. I like you guys there. And uh, well, thank you. I, I, I liked or love ILATS. So I was on board ILATS 10 years ago. Now I'm on the ILADF. You mentioned that educational foundation. So I want to bring, I, I'm, I think I also, I'm a little teacher, you know, I want to bring a mission uh, to the people. I want to bring a mission um, to the patients for sure, but also to therapists, to educate them, to teach them because knowledge is so poor in the world about Lyme disease, co-infection, what is. I had the same story behind me 20 years ago. I didn't know what is co-infection, but Tonella, I never heard about that. I said, oh, it's it's from my uncle from, from the moon or somewhere. Um, I never heard about Babesia. I said, what's Babesia? That's something for the dogs or so. <laughs> uh, that was a funny story. Um, yeah, my mission was also to bring that because I like to, um, I was also entertainer, maybe uh, I was a keyboarder since uh, yeah, also 50 years or so, it was 13 years. Um, so I, I entertained people in bigger bands and playing music. So that time Hammond Orchard and so um, I like that. And um, this is also to my, my mission to bring also that style to make it uh, not boring, to make um, this uh, also alive, this uh, topic, because it's could be boring if you go into this theoretical thing. Um, so I want to teach, educate, and I was also um, a member of the um, Oriacht, uh, I went to Oriachtas to Parliament. I was advisor for the Australian government, Richardowitz together. Uh, I went to Canberra, Australia. I went to, I was in, the, uh, in this think tank uh, from Canada. They asked me, I, I went with Christian Perron to Paris um, also. So I did a lot of action, but I don't want to be in the foreground. I want to be in the background. Uh, I'm a networker. You know, I want to bring people together and I'm always happy, as you mentioned, the patient 
patient feels better. I'm happy if a doctor uh, feels better because patients feel better, I feel better. So this is uh, my mission and it's not a mission impossible. I'd like to focus for a moment on uh, your educational background. I mean, you are clearly a polymath. You have, we should probably talk about the things you haven't done because that list would be shorter than all the things you, you, are, you, you are accomplishing as an entertainer, as an educator, as a medical doctor, as, a, as, as an expert on so many different um, you know, uh, topics. Um, but you know what, what is always interesting to us here at Take Bootcamp is how, how um, mindset controls cognition, meaning your mindset will control what you have you have the capacity to see. And we see that in a number of different pieces. And we interviewed, for example, for example, Dr. Uh, Tanya Dempsey recently, where she shared with us that she, although practicing in upstate New York and a brilliant doctor, she never saw a Lyme patient until she took a Horowitz course. And then once Dr. Horowitz shared with her what the what the elements of Lyme disease were, she just saw patient after patient after patient with Lyme disease. And, and it seems like you had that same experience. So despite you were seeing Lyme patients, because you didn't have the capacity um, to perceive that they were Lyme patients because your educational experience and any other information that you had gathered did not allow you to see Lyme disease because it wasn't a part of your educational experience. So talk to us about how you had an epiphany when you learned about Lyme and how all of the uh, patients that you're now treating with Lyme disease had been misdiagnosed, not just by you, but everyone in the medical community because it was an adequate education on Lyme disease. Yeah, in, after that um, episode with this multiple sclerosis patient, maybe I mentioned she's cured until nowadays. So she's wow. completely healed from that. She was uh, also wrongly treated with corticosteroids that time because doctors using now immune suppression, not uh, the, to boost the immune system, the absolute wrong way they are doing now in medicine, my opinion. Um, so when I came to that field, I said to myself, I need like Horowitz, that was similar time. I did it more in Europe. I did some road shows, you could say. Um, I went to different countries, to Norway, to Finland, to Italy, to Spain, um, to France, everywhere I went. And I tried to give some webinars, not, not webinars that time, uh, workshops. Webinars came later on. Uh, but I'm just a single man. I'm a single fighter. I, uh, they named me the German Lime Fighter that time. Also, we had a little Lime fighting team in the world. You know, Alex was really good, but it was a little group. 50 members, that's all. Then we grew up, um, up to more. And uh, it, it's still this mission and to inform the doctors, to teach them about uh, how to diagnose and, and this misdiagnosis, uh, what I cannot tell, tolerate. If you play a song as a musician and you uh, you play the wrong way, you, you say, oh, you, you're playing horrible, <laughs> uh, your music style. So play different. So um, I, I think um, we are not educated my generation uh, student from the 80s 90s maybe nowadays the guidelines they are completely wrong you know they they are just uh, monopolistic guidelines for neurologists for dermatologists they hide behind the guidelines they say it's a guideline so but what is guideline guideline is a recommendation um so it's a political thing it's for sure i asked also myself the question why is it so misdiagnosed that's an important question why do you not accept what the patient is telling you the patient tells you the truth you could say okay everybody's psychosomatic 
diabetics and send them to the hospitals there, give them antidepressive remedies, but this is not the solution, you know, and maybe you have a chance if it's really an active infection, if it's Lyme disease, you can diagnose, you can treat. And then I came to the test, you know, test, horrible test, uh, the ELISA, forget the ELISA, forget the immunoblots, forget the Western blots. There's a longer story about that, where I came from this uh, uh, T-cell test that time 18 years ago, I, I never uh, were teach, I'm laboratory doctor, I never were teached about that, you know, so I was educated in the wrong way. So completely one way street with that end, no solution, uh, patient taking their lives, no hope, uh, working disabilities, it, it costs a lot of uh, money for the social systems, you know, if the, you cannot go to work, this all the story behind that. Um, but um, what I know nowadays, or can tell you, nearly every condition, also hair loss, for sure, the ME, myalgic encephalomyelitis, um, if you have, as an example, autism, ADS, ADHDs, um, if you have all neurological uh, issues, uh, symptoms, Parkinson's, uh, whatever, um, uh, not just the multiple sclerosis, all the neuropathies, the heart, uh, Bordeaux-Bock can move everywhere. I didn't know that time. So I think it's easy to diagnose, easy to treat. So uh, it doesn't exist. And, and that is um, the, the general mistake I did also. So you, you can say, I mean, you're guilty for that, but I didn't know that. And But wow. if you know that, you should... Uh, change um, your mind and um, the doctors are not so open-minded they are fixed with their guidelines you know in the in the different uh, subspecies so uh, neurologists as an example they are fixing their guidelines if the spinal fluid is negative no Lyme disease so um, if you you can discuss that uh, and also be careful, Rich. Not everything is Lyme disease. Right, I can right, tell right. you. In, we, in the we, beginning, I thought everything is Lyme disease. So the years 2006, 2010, I thought everything is Lyme disease in the world. Yes. Yeah, so we, we we have to strike that balance between recognizing that there is there there is a great deal of Lyme disease, but not everyone has Lyme disease. I I uh, my wife often accuses me of believing that every single person in the world has Lyme disease. And I, I am certainly to the point where I believe everyone in our local community where we live on Long Island, New York, certainly has is harboring the Lyme bacteria. It doesn't mean that it's it's symptomatic. And I think most of us um, have a healthy enough immune system where we can manage that. But we'll, we'll get there in a second. I, I do want to talk a little bit more about how a man with your diverse interests and your diverse background ultimately came to funnel that um, diverse set of, of experiences and education and interest to opening a lab. How did, how did you ultimately funnel all of those interests down to a point where you decided you were going to open a lab? And did you believe, as part two of my question, that you were going to build the premier Lyme disease lab in the world? Um, I was forced doing that. You know, the preconditions, it was not the money-making aspect because um, it's a high risk if you switch from a good position from an established normal laboratory like Quest or LabCo, you have good position as a laboratory doctor. Uh, you never would do uh, for the money aspect to, to start a laboratory like that. It's a high risk uh, business if you start that. Um, maybe I'm, I, we go back 2006. Um, I started with the Lyme Clinic, interestingly. Um, I met a colleague and uh, we said, okay, let us do together and start a Lyme Clinic. Uh, unfortunately, the Lyme Clinic 
didn't went so pretty well after a while. And then I said, okay, I need to separate the clinic because I have a conflict of interest in that. I want to be independent from clinics, from therapists. Uh, it doesn't make sense to, to cooperate so closely. I said, do your own lab. So I did also some therapies in that uh, former clinic. Um, I treated just Lyme disease, but I didn't know about all of these other infections, viruses, parasites, yeast, mold, mycotoxins. Now, okay, I learned also a lot um, because it's, as you mentioned, it's an all Lyme disease. We need to uh, talk about the complexity of this uh, chronic uh, multiple uh, system illnesses the patient suffering from. Um, so I came from this treatment to uh, say now, uh, Armin, let us start a Lyme level just for Lyme. But uh, it was more than Lyme. It was also the co-infections. It was after a while, it was clear. It's not just uh, uh, just in the ticks, um, the, the Borrelia burgdorferi. It's also a lot of other pathogens, chlamydia, mycoplasma, we found with Eva Sharpie in some studies. So we came uh, to the aspect also uh, to go more into the broader infectious diseases. Um, it's, uh, as I mentioned, Lyme is a starter. I let me say now the menu is coming later. Um, it's like SARS-CoV-2, you have the virus, virus is coming to your body, but later on you suffer from other uh, inflammation or whatever, or coagulopathies, autoimmune disorders. So this is, um, but what I can tell you, and you're correct in your area, Every, uh, everybody had tick bites. I had also tick bites for sure, but I don't have active Lyme disease. So um, I have some other issues, other pathogens in my body. Uh, can talk later about that. It's not Borrelia burgdorferi. I had a tick bite when I was six years old and my parents in the nine, I'm 60 years, my parents put oil on the ticks. And, uh, it was on my head and it was hurting, hurting, hurting. And uh, in the sixties, nobody knew about Lyme disease. So, um, but I don't have Lyme disease. Um, so I I never had these symptoms, but other patients have this for sure. Um, so Lyme is for sure. It I, I think we should keep it in the focus, but we know now it's more than Lyme disease. You know, this is my story, and maybe you are on the way on that story. If you uh, interview other uh, people like Horowitz or other experts for in this field, uh, they will tell you similar stories. Uh, we work independently. You know, we meet at ILOTS conferences, but we respect each other. But everybody has to do so much work we, we we don't know where to start and uh, where to begin uh, this is so much work so many patients and the doctors do the mistakes they do the mistakes outside you cannot say you're guilty for your mistakes they don't know better uh, we we try to rescue we we try to educate we try to do everything but we are a little group you are we are minority it's david versus goliath you know the system we are not the mainstream medicine now so Dr. Armin, I just want to highlight the fact that we are so happy that you are part of this powerhouse team of ILADS. And you've mentioned Professor Ava Shapi, Dr. Richard Horowitz, Dr. Joseph Viroscano, all of whom we've had on this podcast that have brought similar ideas together, but not exactly what you're sharing. So each of you bring a different piece to the puzzle to the table. And it's really exciting to hear your piece of the puzzle in, in this, this experience, right? But another thing we really appreciate about you and your story so far is the fact that you said, hey, look, I got my PhD in 1992, over 30 years ago. I didn't even know what Lyme was. Then I realized Lyme was a thing. And then I thought everything was Lyme. And then I realized not everything is Lyme. And there's a lot of other things, co-infections, co et cetera. There's, it's the multitude of things, infections, bacteria, and that contributes to the overall picture of somebody's health. But I think where many of us get stuck is 
we don't want to say that we could be wrong. We don't want to admit that there are things we maybe don't know, and that causes us not to grow and therefore not get better in our healing journeys. One of the posts we've recently put up on our social media was about the connection between Lyme disease and Bartonella. And many people, uh, I'm sorry, Lyme disease, Bartonella, and autism. And the autism community got up in arms on this post saying that autism is not a symptom, it's a personality trait. It's ingrained in their personality. And no matter what we do, whether it's Bartonella or whether it's Lyme disease, there's no connection between the two and we are doing a disservice to the community. And now, you know, Rich and I believe that there is a connection. We've had Debbie Kimberg, whose son was autistic and after treating Bartonella and Lyme was significantly better, went from barely functioning to being able to go to college and graduate, right? Which is a huge transformation in his personal life. So we've heard this story from people at a personal level and on this podcast numerous times, but I guess, you know, how would you respond to that where our communities, including our Lyme community can get set in our ways and not want to recognize we could be wrong, and ultimately, we just want to feel better. And whatever that is, whatever the truth is, we want to be open to that, right? And even with the autism connection, do you think autism and Lyme and Bartonella really do have a great connection there? Yes, but you cannot say every autistic uh, ch child has now Bartonella or uh, a virus, Coxsackie virus. You need to differentiate. Um, it's like appealing the onion model, and that makes it interdisciplinary. We need to respect each other. So, But some groups, I know what you're talking about, they just stuck in one-way streets. They say, no, there's no connection. Uh, this is an exclusion, and this can damage the patient. So um, you need to think about that. And Bartonella has to do with the cats, cat scratches, ticks. It's, it's it's, it's a cat story also or dog story behind that or tick story. Um, um, this uh, means also this peeling the onion model in uh, where I also thought about that 10 years ago, peeling the onion model. It's also, uh, let me say, the environment, the heavy metals, uh, the hormones, the autoimmune, the dirty water, the environment, um, maybe the 5G, whatever you discuss in that. But we all belong together. And we, uh, not every patient has every problem. We need to differentiate, but there's no doctor, there's no clinic in the world doing that. You know, um, we are stuck in the different disciplines. I'm infectious disease. I could do the postulation. Every autistic child is suffering now from Bartonellosis, plus maybe a virus, plus maybe um, Borrelia together huh? in a multiple. But um, that means that we need to differentiate, and but we need to check also this. Not everybody has Bartonella antibiotics. Not everybody has Bartonella alias spot positive. Not everybody has a lymph node swollen where you could do biopsy. Not everybody has elevated VEGF, whatever. Um, so we need to differentiate. And then the doctors come, they come into borderlines, okay? Because functional medicine, what is functional medicine? What is mitochondropathy? You know, mitochondropathy can be Lyme disease, can be virus, can be parasite, can be co-infection. It's unspecific. The symptoms are completely unspecific. But to in this field, uh, when I saw that, I developed a special checklist. It's named the co-infection checklist, interestingly. And I said, nobody uh, can know about all of the symptoms these different bacteria in the ticks are doing with you. And um, the doctors cannot know that. How, how can you know about all of the symptoms in the teaching books, they are not infectious diseases, doctor, but I'm doing the whole day. So uh, I, I learned from Boris Kano that time, really. Uh, 18 years ago, and I said, wow, he's good in this. And then in Germany, we learned about that. Now we talk about more the co-infections, sure, but that's not the whole story. Um, we need to bring this interdisciplinary uh, teams on a round table, maybe, you know, you know, not to exclude each other and not to 
do aggression. Uh, no, it's not Lyme disease. Well, you're, you're crazy. It's genetics, epigenetics, whatever. So we need uh, to give the patient a chance. But if an infection is behind that, you have so many options. You can diagnose, you can treat patients getting better. Not every autistic child has a Lyme disease, for sure. But some have that. And if you have it, you need to treat. So, Dr. Armin, let's talk about one of the things that we're very sensitive about here at Tick Boot Camp. Um, and one of the things that we've argued with many of our, uh, our guests and some of our mentors is how to define Lyme disease, right? And whether or not we should even be using the word Lyme to describe this, uh, this spectrum of, of illness, right? So we here at Tick Boot Camp um, are, um, as you probably know, um, uh, very big fans of Dr. Alan McDonald. And Dr. Alan McDonald took the position on our podcast and actually in some of his writing is that we should divorce from the term Lyme. Uh, and uh, we actually disagree with Dr. McDonald, despite loving him as much as we do, we don't think we should be divorcing from the term. We think we should be taking control of the definition of the term. And our argument is that Lyme disease should be defined as a polymicrobial, multisystemic, chronic infectious disease. And if we did have that definition as a definition of this disease, then more people and more doctors in particular would have the capacity to at least consider this spectrum of disease as, as, as a possibility for just about anything that people come in with. But unfortunately, you know, when we have organizations like the CDC and the NIH who are defining Lyme disease as, uh, as an infection from one bacteria, and it has a particular limited set of presentations largely developed by the early rheumatologists who, um, who, who were first evaluating the, the uh, you know, the Lyme clusters, uh, we, we, we have a lot of challenges at the outset just defining this disease. So what would be your reaction to the tick boot camp definition of Lyme disease as a polymicrobial multisystemic chronic infectious disease? Yes, this is where I came from before Corona. <laughs> before COVID-19, uh, so three, four years, I exactly uh, was your, um, I, it was my opinion, okay? Um, so first to say the tick is a dirty needle. It need not to be Lyme disease. It could be also Ehrlichia anaplasma doing similar symptoms like Lyme. Um, the case definition is so important also for the studies. You know, the studies are not respecting in the differentials chronic multiple. The studies of CDC or we are doing, um, not we are now on the way, we look for multiple infections. So every patient, um, think Borrelia burgdorferi is coming through your skin, not every patient has a bulzarish. 10% have a summer flu, and then they have the infection in the, and then they get symptomatic after that. So the doctors don't know that. Um, the, these dirty needles, they can transmit a lot of pathogens. And in this current stage, we don't know what is all in the ticks. The vets, they know more than us. You know, if you talk with a vet about a dog, Bartonella and Barbiza, they know all about that more, much more the different subspecies, but not the humans, you know. Um, the humans are not, are not diagnosed and treated. We, uh, the tests are not so good as the vets have the tests, you know, that's the same, the next problem. But what I can you tell you after the crisis, we have a model and that's pretty clear in the world. It's uh, opened my eyes and I'm not the only one now um, where I say it's maybe still a hypothesis, but but I think it's realistic. When the infection is coming into your body, what happens? Um, you get an inflammation, correct? And you get, after a while, immune dysfunction. 
So um, what is happening in this model? That's the 3i model in the world. We are talking now, discussing, it's a little group, but it's pretty clear that it's a 3i model, infection plus inflammation plus immune dysfunction. What happens with your body? The same is with SARS-CoV-2. If SARS-CoV-2 is coming in your body, what's happening? Inflammation, immune dysfunction. What do you get from this? Coagulopathies, cold hands, cold fingers, no oxygen in your blood. Hmm? Um, you have air hunger, whatever. Uh, you have the inflammation, you have the coagulopathy, and then you get the autoimmune disorders, or in the worst case, you get cancer. We know that. So this is the TH17 pathway. Um, the immune dysfunction, every infection, you get an immune suppression. It's, it's pretty clear. So these infections, they do cytokines outside, they inflame you. And by this and by the pathogen, the release of the different toxins, whatever you name it, lipopolysaccharides, uh, then you come to this immune dysfunction. What is immune dysfunction? Immunology. I worked also immunology with my HIV patient. This is exactly the HIV model. HIV model. It's, it's the AIDS model of the 80s. We are coming now back to that from SARS-CoV-2 and the same model with Lyme disease the same model. So it's not just what you did, the definition for the infection, the polymicrobial, it's the inflammatory part and the immune dysfunction part. And immunology, it's clear. If you have a weak host, you get a tick bite. You have a higher chance to get really evident Lyme disease than immune competent persons. This depends on pre-existing conditions. And this is so important with our cellular and tumoral immune system. As an example, you cannot imagine how many from us are running around without knowing that we have a lot of infections, silent carriers, so the infection sleeping in us. Also Borrelia, Burgdorferi can persist intracellular, persist the forms around, but we have special tests for that. So you see it's persistent infection, but it can be reactivated. And some of us, they never get sick, never. Silent carrier, silent inflammation, never get sick, never. Maybe you have a bad gut or a situation or you have a leaky gut, whatever, but you never get really sick. Some of us get very, very sick. Why? Because they have genetical predispositions. Maybe you have a lot of stress. You have a hormonal problem with the cortisol, with the adrenaline, noradrenaline, dopamine. So you have a weakened host. The same model with SARS-CoV-2. This for all of these infections. And Lyme is doing the same. You know, you cannot differentiate. And we need to come to a model also in my opinion, pretty clear, and also other professors, we need um, to diagnose and to treat the three big eyes, the infection, the inflammation, and the immune dysfunction. Otherwise, you never will come forward in chronic conditions. So do you believe that is the path? It's infection to inflammation to uh, immune dysfunction, or is it is it something other than a direct path to immune dysfunction? And are you defining chronic disease or chronic illness as as a disease that has overwhelmed your uh, your immune system that's a good question so um if you're healthy you're completely healthy and you have a tick bite the tick bite can really make you sick it can kill you with a myocarditis you know so you can die by that um it can be really aggressive you know also we need to respect that some borrelia uh, subspecies are really aggressive to us like sars-cov-2 some got really really sick from sars-cov-2 some not you know so it depends also we name it um the pathogenity 
of this pathogen. It can be really, uh, really aggressive, this Borrelia subspecies to you, um, and you, you are a weakened host. And then I think it's more the triggering factor. So every, uh, the inflammation is triggering also the infection. The infection is also triggering the immune dysfunction. The immune dysfunction, um, it's, um, you, you are in a circling around that, you know, and if you don't break that, the three big eyes, um, the chance is really low if you just use antibiotics. They also work a little anti-inflammatory, but they destroy the gut. Gut is 80% of the immune system. So you destroy natural immune system that cannot work. And what I see nowadays, I can tell you, that's my uh, my last story now, where I, I'm coming from viruses, viruses, viruses. I've seen every patient in the world, I see reactivated, name it maybe opportunistic, viral infections. And that's again the SARS-CoV-2 model. We have the long COVID. We have some patients with post-vax syndrome now. They have so many herpes viruses reactivated, so many EBV reactivated. And uh, this is again the Lyme story. It's a model. It's a model for all different pathogens coming into our bodies. Uh, so if, if, if we don't follow up um, these three eyes, we don't have a good chance to cure the patient. We're stuck in one way, you know, we just using antibiotics. We, we use uh, antivirals, we use antiparasites. Therefore, the functional medicine is not bad. The functional medicine is good, but um, sometimes it's also just working around something. If you don't kill or bring the pathogen back into sleep mode, I name it sleep mode, into persister forms, let them sleep. Let, let us arrange with the Borrelia, let, let us sleep. Uh, don't awake the lion. Don't awake a sleeping lion in your body. So support the immune system. Uh, do a lot of this. Doing against inflammation. Do good nutrition. So the, the gut plays a very, very important role. And in the gut, it's not just Borrelia. We have these gut viruses. And this is problem number one in the world. Our nutrition, the gut viruses, and all of this mitochondropathy, the fatigue, and all of these disciplines you will see in the future. They will not come around us. They need us. And uh, this is my mission. Also, it's not again, not the mission impossible to start with this model, not to exclude all of these different functional medicine doctors, bring them environmental medicine, heavy metal specialists, bring them together uh, uh, with us in one team, in one group. I know it's not so easy because uh, sometimes they're stuck in a concept, microimmune therapies. Okay, they work on the immune system, that's good, but it's not solving the infection, it's not solving the inflammation. You know, you need something else, anti-inflammatory and infective. And this is individually, we are profilers. I'm a profiler. I need to know which infection is active in which patient, okay? Uh, in many, it's Lyme disease in the beginning, but later on, it's a little more refined there. Um, maybe more opportunistic, maybe more reactivated from the sleep mode inactivity because of the immune uh, dysfunction. Patients are not uh, diagnosed, uh, diagnosed too late. We need three to five years for one patient to be diagnosed. Uh, it's impossible. So we need to, uh, to teach about what is a Lyme symptom. I agree with you, Lyme symptom is unspecific. Bulsarash is not specific, it's pathognomonic, to treat that, but it's very often misdiagnosed. We have atypical bulsarashes as an example. The neurology and neuropathies are difficult. The Bell's palsy is easy, you know, Justin Bieber, uh, this very famous uh, singer, he's not suffering just from Lyme disease. He has also an EBV, or I, I think it's a, a varicella infection, something uh, additionally that makes it more complicated. It's not just Lyme disease, so antibiotics will not help him. They cannot help. You cannot use antibiotics in virus infection. 
infections. You can treat a bacterial infection, but you cannot treat a virus. You cannot treat the parasite with it. So we need, to, uh, we are profilers. We need to know individual profiles for the patient. And therefore I'm staying with my laboratory for this test. I'm a, a criminal story. I want to know which infection is active in which patient or not. We have also patients with no active infections. Okay, they don't have anything. They have a different reason. And this is the message also to other groups around us, autistic group, autism groups or chronic fatigue group to come closer to us. We have this patient and we cannot come forward in helping with infection because they don't suffer from infections. Dr. Ahmed, I want to ask you a question because I think you very clearly outlined that it's never going to be a step-by-step -step sequential piece. It's not an infection leads inflammation leads to immune dysfunction in every case. You could you could have pre-existing inflammation, you could have pre-existing immune dysfunction depending on genetic disorders, and it's generally the collective three together which causes a chronic illness, right? And that makes sense. But then you also made a really important point when you said if we treat with strong antibiotics. We're addressing the infection, but we're then damaging the immune system because we're damaging the gut, right? So people listening to this podcast who have chronic Lyme disease, they have a Lyme infection, they have a Borrelia-Burgdorferi infection, and probably a lot of other co-infections. And we know all of us have inflammation, immune dysfunction, and a bucket of infections. How do you argue they treat? So your lab, Armin Labs can say, hey, you have this set of infections, but you also have immune dysfunction and inflammation if you're chronically ill. If antibiotics aren't the answer, what do you recommend to people listening to this podcast to help get themselves in a healthy state of life so they can go back and do more and more things and not be bed bound or not be limited when it comes to their health and what they can do in life? Now we're at the point where I did um, oncology chemotherapies and what do you do with chemotherapies to, to suppress, you destroy the immune system completely? What happens? Some patients can get bacteria infections, Yersinia, or name it Streptococcus, maybe easier Staphylococcus to understand. And you need to treat with an antibiotic individually. So they get high fever, how high CRP, high leukocytes. These are all signs for that, you know, uh, kidney problems. Uh, you need to differentiate. But some of these uh, oncology patients with chemotherapies or HIV, they suffer from viral infections, reactivations. They got herpes, cold sores, whatever. And then you need a viral statics. Some of these patients, again, profile, you cannot say everybody is suffering from everything, that's incorrect. Some of these patients, they have uh, viruses plus bacteria and maybe parasite additionally, so three different. So you need to treat all three different, the infections. But um, again, you need to treat, nevertheless, you need to treat in every case the immune dysfunction, and the inflammation, this is independent from all of uh, what I talked about, the differentials of, we have, look, we have five different infections group in the world. One are the bacteria, the second is the virus group, the third one is a parasitical group, and we have yeast and mold. We forgot that completely, yeast and mold. So, and this is also a huge issue if you use as an example, antibiotics and all of this, I name it chem chemical yeah, chemistry. I, we are, I, I was pharmacist, you know, by chemistry. Um, these are ke chemistry. This is a synthesis of chemical products. They have side effects. 
and they can damage your liver, they can damage your kidney, you could get problem with the leukocytes, um, and you could get leukopenia, uh, the leukocytes going down, the viruses, you have a virus infection, leukocytes makes it still lower, 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 so you, you weaken your, your neutrophils, your, your granulocytes, you have lymphocytosis, you're not immune competent. Um, therefore, when I, I came to that point, I thought, okay, what, what can we do now? Now, we need to work on the TH1, TH2 immune system. We need to know, uh, we need to work on the natural killer cells for sure. Is it a strong CD56, CD57 situation? Uh, what about the TH1 system, CD3 cells? What about the uh, humoral immune system, CD19 cells, immune globulins, IgG subclasses, uh, subclass deficiencies? Uh, we need to know the immunology of this patient to bring that also together with the infection. And then we need to about the inflammation. We have, as an example, sonulin, this marker or the rantus. It's also a marker for inflammation cytokines, cytokine profiles. We are profilers because all of these infections are doing cytokine profiles, interferon gamma, uh, TNF alpha, interleukin 2, 6, 10, whatever. So we need individual profiles and then we need to balance the immune system, bring it back, but we need to uh, support the natural immune defense. So it's good to have antibodies. It's good to have cellular immune reactions. It's good to have uh, natural killer cells. If you don't have them, <laughs> you will die. Uh, you are immune incompetent. You, you die easily from an opportunistic infection, from a yeast and wall infection. So we need to bring that all together. And, and this, I, I know, I understand it. Uh, no, uh, for you, for your understanding, it's really complex. Um, how can we bring all of that together? We need to book maybe uh, some, some disciplines, immunologists bring them together with us, infectious diseases doctors, inflammatory specialists, functional medicine doctors. So we, we need to bring all of us together and then we can develop a general uh, concept, but we don't have a wonder pill, a wonder truck for everybody. That was my dream uh, to have a wonder truck with Artemisia maybe in it, selenium, zinc, uh, whatever, maybe some stevia, some <laughs> antivirals from Stephen Puna to put something all together in a big pill for everybody. But this is also not the solution, you know, because not everybody tolerates the different uh, complements pathways. And I, nowadays, I'm not so a fan of the these uh, chemicals, you know, not of the antibiotics, not of the uh, disulfiram. I'm on the way nature, coming back to the nature, coming back to the roots of medicine from Greece, from here, Germany, Hildegard from Bingen, Sebastian Kneipp. So the German herbal medicine, this is, uh, it's no risk for the patient. But in the end, Maybe you need for some patients harder truck, you need a harder therapy to help them because they have a crisis. The pathogen is so active, so aggressive in the body. You need to stop it. We learned all of that from SARS-CoV-2. We learned that, you know, how to handle, how to deal. The doctors are now a little more open-minded to that, but they don't understand the complexity. And now we are going back to normal mode. It's, it's not so good, but this time was a good time for us. Uh, we learned a lot about our immune system, about the inflammation, about the multiple opportunistic reactivation about, and that was good for I think also for Lyme disease. So we should not be too, uh, to be focused. I, I also friend with Alan McDonald. Uh, I know him very well. So I, I also on that way uh, to say, okay, Alan, you're correct with that. But uh, now the time is going more into this uh, three eyes. So Dr. Armin, one of the things that, you know, we, we as patients um, generally hope for and almost expect is that 
there's a bug that's causing us to be sick. There's going to be a medication that will kill that bug, and then we won't be sick any longer. And what you're what you're arguing, and I think it's important for our listeners to understand, is that it's much more complex than that. That we've essentially been set up by the medical community to believe one bug, one medicine, and we're better. And really, what we have is a, a much more complex um, uh, experience where it is going to be multiple bugs, uh, which is consistent with our definition of Lyme disease here at Tick Boot Camp. We also have these environmental factors that you were you were you were defining before, such as mold and and other environmental factors that we are harboring. So we, we, so we, we you you were talking about our microbiome and all of the all of the um, all of the other bugs that we're managing and but we are not uh, symptomatic, but we're able to manage them. And then of course, we, we were talking about a little bit about genetics and that prong of genetics and epigenetics and what is our predisposition and how are the bugs and our, and our interaction with the bugs changing us epigenetically, meaning the non-coded genes, how are they now changing so that it's not serving us? So we have this very complex model that you're outlining for us. And I think it's important for folks in our community to understand that it's not one bug, one drug, one uh, you know, one solution. It is a it is a multifaceted solution, and it's difficult for doctors to understand. But at the same time, it's also important for us as patients to understand that our goal should be our goal should be set in a way that we're 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 looking to ultimately get into remission by dealing with uh, our immune dysfunction, dealing with our inflammation, and dealing with the infection, but not just the infection piece and not just the infection from one bug, but how it's presenting overall and then dealing with all three elements of this in a, in a collaborative way. Absolutely correct. So th this is the way for the future, you will see. Um, one point, um, you say, okay, we agree if we treat early enough, um, there's not a high risk to get more chronic also, uh, but don't forget some, what I mentioned, some of these bacteria, Borrelia burgdorferi in this case, very aggressive. So you can try what you want. <laughs> you don't have a chance. Maybe they are antibiotic resistant. But what we saw in a lot of models, I was involved also in scientific projects um, 10 years ago with a European uh, project uh, with Professor Gilbert. We saw this, uh, that Borrelia is moving with SAPI, this IFA SAPI at the same time, that Borrelia um, is moving um, within seconds intracellular into persister forms, into round bodies with a double membrane. So, and uh, it's, it's hidden in the macrophages. So you cannot reach it easily with an antibiotic. You cannot reach it. You can do what you want. <laughs> also in chronic condition, also in the very fresh infection. It's, it's um, the mistakes were done from the doctors. If you want to take about mistakes, too short treatment, not monitoring bulzarashes, misdiagnosing. These are the mistakes in the beginning. If you diagnose it early, we have a better chance to use good antibiotics, but we need to monitor patients. Also, if you have a bulzarash, you need to do control check of bulzarash. How is your treatment working? Not just giving 10 days doxycycline, that's uh, sometimes not enough you know we cannot do we cannot do the postulation one dosage 400 milligram or 200 milligram 10 day three weeks then it's good so this is no postulation um, for Borrelia burgdorferi or other pathogens. And also maybe this point again, the tick is a dirty needle and who guarantees? So I'm a fan of the tick test. I want to know what is in the tick. We have a PCR, Nobel Prize winning method, good prices, 
keep the tick, check the tick. If you have the tick, what is in the tick? What is in, in this pathogen? And um, many have rickettsia, rickettsiosis, not Lyme disease. So um, this is completely different. Also symptoms, it's, it's not a bullseye you know. You need to know and some are burning the ticks and then the tick has gone. So uh, I came from tick test over 20 years ago. I said, keep the tick test. It's, it's not a money-making issue. It's a self-cost price uh, laboratories doing. Um, it's prevention, uh, test the tick or keep the tick. Uh, you know, the oldest patient is the uh, Iceman, Ötzi, 3,600 years old. So you can do the PCR. The oldest tick is 40 million years old. Borrelia is 15 million years old. So it's a very, very old infection. It's not a, nothing new, um, but we, we have now modern laboratory medicine. We have now modern treatment. Uh, we are in a better time period now. So we need to know what is transmitted from the tick. It's not just to say uh, it's now Lyme disease uh, because uh, I, I have bulzarash. It could be the same time you have Babesia in the tick, you know, so, and you have a double infection. And if you just treat with an antibiotic, you don't treat the parasite, you don't treat Babesia. You need to, uh, maybe you, that time you, you would have need an uh, antimalaria treatment, uh, hydroxychloroquine, whatever you, you give for this patient. You, you need to treat this patient for Babesia at the same time. But if you don't know that, or you do blood test maybe in this patient for Babesia, you do blood test for Elichia and um, the ticks are completely different, um, also in different regions. And uh, again, the vets have better tests. We have so many, uh, I think so many uh, subspecies from Borrelia we don't know actually. Uh, they're coming to our body and we cannot test for them. You know, We have so many rickettsia, we cannot test for them. We don't have the good tests you know, and affordable tests. Um, this is a huge problem. We, we need to cooperate with the, with the vets and, and they know more, I think, about that. Uh, um, uh, this is one of our aims also from ILETS, I think, so to come closer with other experts, universities, um, because uh, normally you care more for your dog with the parasites uh, or, or Lyme disease or Babesia than you care uh, for the pet owner, for the dog owner. <laughs> this is ridiculous, you know, and um, you say, yes, absolutely correct, Armin. So we need to know what is in the dirty needle, uh, but also it's in mosquitoes. Maybe you need to know that Borrelia can be in mosquitoes. You know, <laughs> it's it's not it's not just yeah yeah. We have proven cases in mosquitoes. Single case reports about that. It's also in the in the guidelines. Um, we have literature about that. So not to make you panicking about that, but it could be it could be that you get a bullseye from mosquito bite after that. I had or horse flies. I, I had such patients. You know, so interestingly, I never would have believed in that because it's tick-borne illness. Maybe let name it, let it name vector-borne illness. It's much better to, to ask for vectors. And a lot of these infections are acquired uh, in foreign countries. If you travel in Australia, they say, no, we don't have Lyme disease. We don't have the pathogen, but Australians traveling around and may, um, I, I, we, I can bring them some ticks, you know, import some ticks to Australia uh, on a kangaroo, bring the kangaroo back with the ticks. And then you have Borrelia Lyme disease in Australia. So the songbirds, the birds play a role with the multiple sclerosis bringing. Um, this is um, now this um, pathogen can be everywhere in your garden, everywhere. So so we need to educate. And in America, I think it's wonderful what the park rangers doing in some areas. They inform prevention. Don't lean on the trees. Don't uh, uh, check yourself after ticks. And so uh, this is really good education. America is uh, doing better than Germany, as an example.
Dr. Arma, we couldn't agree more that veterinary medicine can help us continue to make advancements in the Lyme world. And just actually this past week, we launched our podcast interview with Professor Nicole Baumgart from Johns Hopkins. She's the director of the Lyme and Tick-Borne Disease Institute over there at Johns Hopkins for last year. But she has a multidisciplinary background like yourself, Dr. Arman, in veterinary medicine, infectious disease. And she's bringing all that, that, that together to help advance research. So I think collectively with your work and everybody else you mentioned, like Scano, Horowitz, Shopee, now we have got Baumgart, all of your, your interdisciplinary backgrounds together will help bring these things and you know identify more things that were previously unknown. Because it's never just going to be, like you said, this, this one bacteria, this one strain. I mean, we know here in the States, people get tested for Lyme disease. They're negative. They go to a specialty lab like yours and they test positive because we're not even looking for certain strains in our standard lab core Western blots or, or ELISA test, right? So that's another, I'll say, deficit when it comes to testing for Lyme disease. But I do want to, I want to talk to you about your research study you published about anti-nuclear antibody seropositivity in fibromyalgia associated with Borrelia-specific T lymphocytes, right? I know that's a mouthful, and uh, I, you know, but reading that as fast as I did probably makes no sense, but I think simply put, it means that in a testing of fibromyalgia patients, you found that the ones that had, I believe, ANA antibodies, autonuclear antibodies, which indicate some sort of autoimmune problem, you know, to your point of three eyes, right, immune dysfunction, those with immune dysfunction that had fibromyalgia had antibodies for Borrelia. Is that correct? I just want to make sure I understand the study and if you can help us explain what your research study findings were and what this revelation means to the community. Yes, this is interesting um, experience. We had the with this prof, uh, study from Isle of Wight um, with Bazan Puri, professor from London. Um, he initiated. We have a lot of data. There will become more uh, publications. We will be surprised what's coming out with the fibromyalgia group. But what interestingly, we found this ANA titer. I think around 20, 30 percent. This is not surprising. This described. But we know that Borrelia burgdorferi could do a biomimicry effect, the autoimmune disorder, this ANA titer, or vasculitis. Vasculitis is also a word for that. And we've uh, found the ANA titer, a significant correlation with an activity against Borrelia burgdorferi in this test system. So what does that mean? That means to me that you need to check every fibromyalgia patient for ANA titer which is not so pretty common because ANA titer means collagenosis like Sjögren, um, this uh, or SLE, systemic lupus, this direction. Um, you need to check all of these patients for vasculitis and you need to check them for sure for Lyme disease. So that means there is a correlation with it for sure uh, because Borrelia can do the ANA titer. We know that from rheumatoid uh, arthritis patient. Um, there was research done 15 years ago with it OSPA, the outer surface out protein A, uh, which is mimicking. It's a mimicry effect, mimicking. And then your body thinks, oh, wow, that's Borrelia burgdorferi, but uh, um, it's producing wrong antibodies against parts of Borrelia burgdorferi, which are parts of your own immune system. It's named also the shared epitope. We have that um, in our Elispot test, the LFA1, lymphocyte function antigen 1, which is important to check in this test. And then we see, okay, autoimmune 
disorder, check this patient for autoimmune disorder. And uh, Borrelia can do that. Borrelia can be the reason for fibromyalgia. When I started with my first patient treatment, I had rheumatoid arthritis patient, patients and they had CCP antibodies and rheumatoid factor very high and Lyme disease the same time. And I treated the Lyme disease and this titer, the ANA, uh, the sorry, CCP antibodies and the um, rheumatoid factor, they were uh, going back from 10,000 to 200. And the patient improved just treating Lyme disease from rheumatoid arthritis. But this is, again, this is not a rule for all patients, but it belongs in the medicine. We name it differentials. You need to know that. So rheumatologists need to know that with the ANA titer and Lyme disease, the correlation, but they don't do that. It's not in the guidelines. So we need to bring that into evidence-based paperwork, bring them into guidelines, and then they will check for Lyme disease. Then they give patients a chance, a hope, treat them with rosefin or other macrolides, whatever you're using, or doxycycline, minocycline, uh, treat the patients and metronidazole, you have, a, you have a good chance um, to treat them in this case. But no, it's, it's not a rule for all, you know, it's a profile. Not every patient is every uh, time the same. You cannot do that postulation. It's, it's impossible. Um, so this was the way of this study. We found also an association of chlamydia pneumoniae in this fibromyalgia group, an active IG, or an high, higher IgG titer um, with heart rhythm problems. So that's also evidence-based medicine now. We published that three weeks ago, Basanpuri, and we found this Coxsackie virus story. Coxsackie is one of my favorite pathogens in the world. It's I think it's more than Lyme disease. It's a gut virus, enterovirus, uh, where I came, I don't know why I came to that, but it was <laughs> by success and then by accident, sorry, that's what I came to that. And um, uh, it, it's now a successful story for that uh, virus, uh, gut virus. And uh, so many in, in Canada, I see, and also I think in America, I don't know, um, they suffer from active gut virus infections. At the same time, they have Lyme disease. It's a, a easy test, an IgA test. So you, so you see so many IgA. And you can say the test is shit, the test is wrong. It's not reliable. No, the test is reliable. It's accredited, certified. And so this is the story behind. We need to bring quality in the laboratories, quality in the therapies. We need to publish these studies. I'm on the way doing something, other experts doing. So publishing, publishing, publishing. That's all the, the aim of ILADF now. We need to publish and then we need to show evidence. And then we have a chance to come to guidelines and to change the world for your patients, Matt, uh, and Rich, to change the world for you. Well, we are so appreciative and grateful for all the work that you're doing. I mean, I just want to make sure I understood what you said correctly, because in the fiber world specifically, not only did you identify ANA bot antibodies, so anti-nuclear antibodies with Lyme contributing to a subset of fibro patients, and you were very clear, not all fibro patients have Lyme, but some of them you said have, you know, Coxsackie virus or they have chlamydia pneumonia. Those other infections that could be viral infections could be contributing to fibromyalgia as well, right? So you're saying that, hey, if somebody goes and has a fibro diagnosis, look deeper, maybe look for Lyme, look for ANAs, look for Coxsackie, look for viruses, and all of those things could be contributing to fibro, right? And that, that's one piece of it. We know Dr. Alan McDonald has talked about Lewy body dementia with having an underlying cause of Lyme disease. We know he's talked about blood cancer, having underlying connection to Lyme disease. We talked about autism and, uh, and the Bartonella connection. You talked about hair loss, right? I mean, when I first got sick, I went from having 
hair to no hair pretty quickly. Rich knows in my early 20s. These are all signs. And the frustrating part is that although you are working, and thank you, I mean, within the last few weeks, you said you published more studies with Coxsackie and chlamydia pneumonia and fibro. Although we have this information anecdotally and it's working on being solidified into these scientific studies, many of these specialists, when it comes to the cancer field or the autism field, or the fibro field, they're not looking for these underlying conditions, which many of, of them can be Lyme or some other viruses or other things. So why do you think these specialists are so resistant to look for underlying root causes just because it's not mainstream, just because we don't have these SLPs or these, these policies in place to say, hey, if you suspect autism, look for these things too. Or hey, if you, if you have fibro, look for Coxsackie, look for chlamydia pneumonia, look for Lyme disease, look for ANA titers. And these things can result in significant improvement in a short period of time of your patient's symptoms. Why are, why are specialists so resistant to do these things when you have proven many of them and you're close to proving some others and you have anecdotal evidence of, of some other connections as well? Mm, yeah, <laughs> this is uh, really complicated. It's political, you know, it's political. Why don't, don't we come forward with Lyme disease? Why don't we come forward with infections in general? Um, this is a political thing. It's blocked uh, from some level, I think so. Um, there's a lot of lobbyism behind that, you know, so everywhere. Um, the communities and neurologists, maybe they don't want that, you know. Um, in the communities, they suppress also literature, paperwork, uh, scientific paperwork. It's suppressed. It's not mentioned in the guidelines. And the, again, the guidelines, the doctors, they think it's the law <laughs> and they follow the guidelines, but this is uh, just recommendation level. Uh, we don't have guidelines. The cancer field is, uh, I, I worked in oncology and in 1991, I had one patient with an EBV infection, Epstein-Barr virus infection, and a patient had swollen lymph nodes and so was wonderful. And then I did a, a 19 years old kissing disease. I, I did a biopsy from the lymph node. And the same time, the patient developed non-Hodgkin lymphoma, Burkitt lymphoma, 1991. So now we know that EBV can do clearly the mechanism. We know that uh, can do non-Hodgkin lymphoma leukemia. So um, we know a lot about this. Bartonella can do breast cancer. Bartonella can do uh, also pancreatic cancer. We, we have papers, we have studies. Um, you need to Google for that. Uh, nobody's um, bringing this, what I postulate the artificial intelligence is coming now into the field. We need an artificial intelligence uh, to all to check all of this paperwork. It, it might be a case report. It might be a study, but we need to bring all of that knowledge we have that in maybe older studies from the 90s you will find a lot about this your hair loss i had two patients like you lost completely hair with a acrodermatitis lyme disease on the scalp and i treated with antibiotics all hair came back so what does that mean alopecia are, uh, means also to check for lyme disease in the but no dermatologist is doing that they also it's the hormones uh, it's your testosterone yeah? it, it's something else it, it's it's not an infection you know um so the infections are, are not so it's 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 a younger you know a younger discipline in medicine um hrv uh, young 80s lyme disease uh, we're very young disciplines, you know, and not so established like neurology. We need to find, and it's it's really complicated to understand that not everybody can do infectious diseases. They don't understand that. 
if I talk with them, sometimes I say, oh, they don't understand. Patience, you understand more, and you have maybe more time to Google, to learn, to teach yourself about Lyme disease. And then you go to your doctor and you say, oh, I have Lyme disease. No, you don't have Lyme disease. I have this and this symptom, you say. Oh, I never heard about that. Um, you are the experts, and, and this cannot be, you know, sorry to say that. We need to turn it around. The doctors need to know more than you. So Dr. Armin, Rich and I are going to jump into shortly after this, the testing, we're going to put Armin Labs on what you're doing, but I just want to highlight something. You just discussed probably several dozen, connect, we'll say conditions, right? Hair loss, breast cancer, autism, uh, the, the blood cancer, the, you know, all these different things, fibromyalgia that have an underlying root cause. And we, you know, we recently did a post that we talked about, we had Professor Baumgart on, we launched our podcast this past Wednesday, and we did a social media post about how the Lyme bacteria can obliterate your lymph nodes and cause problems with your immune system. Your immune system will not be able to build these long-term immune responses to build long-term immunity to things like Lyme disease. And we had a discussion about how that affects you overall beyond the scope of Lyme. And a lot of comments were made saying, hey, this is really scary. This is like apocalyptic. Why do you share such scary information? And I think you did a really good job of explaining why, because yes, it can seem scary, but the more knowledge we have, it really isn't scary because if we understand the connection, the whole goal here is to improve our quality of life. And this can be life-changing. If you have these conditions and you can identify that, let's say, for example, Bartonella is causing you breast cancer or a, a Bartonella infection or a Lyme infection is making an autism case worse, we can improve significantly a patient's quality of life. And therefore, it's important to discuss these connections. So if we understand one thing causes another, we can work with patients and doctors to improve quality of life, which is what it's all about, right? So how would you respond to that? People is claiming that a lot of this can be triggering, a lot of this can be scary, a lot of it hasn't been proven out yet. But on the flip side, if we can identify these connections, we can improve people's lives, right? In the end, the last sentence was most important, you said. Um, uh, the doctor or therapist did the right job when the patient is improving or healed. So that's uh, the aim, nothing else. Uh, if, you, if your hair is coming back, you're cured, you're healed, you feel better, that's uh, the, the mission, that's the job of a doctor, okay? To help a patient. What's happening now? Um, the doctors destroy the immune system. They use so many cytokine blockers. They use so many immune suppressors. I never heard that. Uh, my my generation was not educated that way in the cortical. I, I, I hate this, meanwhile. So for every, con they oh, use this a little immune suppression. But what I can tell you also, I, I want to do another postulation or reality. It's reality. These infections are the reason. It's not the association. For some patients, it's a reason. And like my multiple sclerosis patient, this was neuroboliosis or chronic Lyme disease with multiple sclerosis-like symptoms. Or Alan McDonald would say it's chronic neuroboliosis with Alzheimer's-like symptoms, Alzheimer's-like symptoms, okay? So we don't want to exclude the neurologist. We say, yes, yes, uh, you can say it's Alzheimer's still, but we want to know the reason. Is the reason active, is not active? This also in cancer, you want to know the reason. And if we come too late, we cannot treat uh, the, uh, the cancer patients. We come too late, you know, we come sometimes too late. They die because we come too late for Bartonella. It's, it's too, it was too uh, much progression in the body. And what I can tell you, maybe um, not, not a secret, but um, in every patient, I get a blood sample. They all have chronic multiple infections. There's not 
just one patient with just one single infection, believe me. They have up to eight, nine, 10 infections active in the same body. Not all infections, some of these, you know, you need to differentiate again. You need to know again which inf infection. So some say, oh, okay, then I treat for virus. I don't know. I don't want to know which infection is active in my body. I take the whole cocktail, but this cannot be the solution. We need to know, uh, what, uh, like in a cancer, you ha could have three different types of cancer. You could have a breast cancer, a gastric cancer, and a colon cancer at the same time. Um, you, we need to know which cancer is active in which patient. And then we treat, and then we have the uh, we name it the staging process, the um, cancer antigens. Uh, as an example, CEA, it's one of these. Huh? We do a staging process, and the same we do with the laboratory tests. We know this patient has active herpes simplex virus. IgA is positive, Elispot positive, and then we need to treat. And if we treat that patient, the IgA needs to vanish, need to be negative, and then we have reached the end patient for sure needs to get better. Um, this is chronic multiple situation. Every patient I diagnose in the world, it's not, not just Lyme disease. Lyme disease mm, as a single infection, maybe in the beginning exists, but all of them have chronic multiple infections with viruses, parasites, yeast, and mold. That's the truth. That's the reality. And that's the way for the future. So Dr. Armin, we want to bring you back to testing. This has been a fascinating discussion and we could probably talk with you for hours and hours and hours about what we've begun to talk about. Uh, but I think most of the folks who are listening to this podcast really want to talk about testing and they want to learn more about the testing element. And there's an upside and a downside to testing, right? Um, and, and we can test the tick, which we had talked about a little bit more. And I, would, I want to build that out with you a little bit. We can test us for microbes, but we also have to test us for other issues because as you had pointed out with the three eyes, there is infection, there is, there is inflammation, and there is immune dysfunction, right? So when we're talking about testing, I think what most people are focusing on is testing the microbes in their body. But I think before we get to that point, we should talk about testing the tick and what's the upside and the downside to testing the tick, right? Because the CDC in the US, for example, is questioning whether or not we should be testing ticks. Now we here at Tick Bootcamp and our Tick by Blueprint strongly recommend that people hold on to their ticks and strongly recommend that they test their ticks. But let's talk about what we find when we do test a tick and how that isn't always um, that that isn't always going to give us the whole picture because of some of the things you were talking about before, which is because it's a polymicrobial in infection because. Um, it's not just what's being spit into you, but what you're also harboring and your genetic predisposition and the environmental and um, uh, uh, factors that you're dealing with, that perhaps there's something you know to be said about the CDC's position, which is the information that we're getting may not uh, give us enough of a picture to give us the treatment tools that we need. So let's first talk about tick testing and what the limits are of tick testing, not just the virtues of tick testing. Yeah, the limitation is that we, I think we cannot test for all pathogens in the ticks. You know, uh, there is one Neoelichia mycorrhensis, which is kind of uh, rickettsia. There are so many different uh, subspecies, other species. We don't know them already. You know, when we started with tick tests, I talked with Eva Sabi and I said to Eva, maybe chlamydia mycoplasma is in the ticks. And she tested ticks for <laughs> chlamydia mycoplasma and she found it. This is an yeah. erogen, this is an erogen transmitted pathogen. Uh, 
pathogen. You know, so um, the tick test is important. I I would not test all of the ticks. Maybe uh, you keep the tick and you have uh, the scotch tab and then you can decide because it costs money. If you have 100 tick bites a season, um, it's not affordable <laughs> to test all of the ticks and it doesn't make really sense to take the whole year long if you're deer hunter uh, doxycycline prophylactically <laughs> that uh, makes dam damage to your gut and make other pathogens multi-resistant like Staphylococcus, MRSR discussion and Enterococcus. So, but the tick test makes sense. If you have the tick, keep the tick. And if you, um, now it's a discussion I know, should I use, if I, I have a tick with Borrelia burgdorferi, I'm not symptomatic, should I take antibiotics? This is always a question, <laughs> difficult to answer prophylactically. Some say yes, some say no. I'm so in between, I would say, okay, um, if you're um, hypochondria, maybe <laughs> you take some antibiotics, but you need to know antibiotics are chemotherapies, they suppress the immune system, you have a risk um, in your for your gut to uh, damage your microbiome. And so so you need um, maybe to, to test the ticks. And uh, then if you know the test, uh, you can follow up, you can monitor yourself if you get some symptoms, but also if your uh, tick is positive, maybe you go to your doctor and say, oh, could I do a Western blot with my blood or an ELISA? Maybe I have some antibodies here. Uh, I, I, I can demonstrate the, we name it zero conversion from IgM to IgG. Or you are a patient, you had IgG, but you don't know about that. And that makes it complicated for laboratories to say, this was really a new, fresh infection, which made you sick. Uh, so it makes always sense to keep an eye on that, on the uh, on this uh, vector, you know? So keep the vector and test it and then document it with official report. The, the method is a PCR, it's a gold standard. So it's not limited, it's like SARS-CoV-2. If you want to say, is it, is it living Borrelia or is it dead uh, Borrelia? PCR cannot decide, you need to culture that. Um, in the tick, uh, it's in the mid-gut of the tick. So, but we can uh, say the tick is free of that. And that gives you a higher chance that you don't get an infection with Borrelia or Rickettsia. And that makes you a better sleep maybe. But also, you know, just 18% of patients remember a former tick bite, 18%, right. one eight. So there's no exclusion criteria. Right. So, so um, Amanda's going to take you through the through the testing piece of, of humans, but I want to talk to you a little bit more about uh, tick bites. So my last two tick bites, uh, we actually had, I saved the tick and we, we tested the tick. And one of the reasons I like tick testing, and I'm just talking about this from patient standpoint, is it's a data point that I use to consider whether or not I was going to treat prophylactically or I wasn't going to treat prophylactically. So the tick, the, 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 the not the last tick bite, but the tick bite before that, that I had, I had a, um, I had found a tick and I do tick check regularly, but I didn't tick check one evening before I went to bed. And in the morning I found a tick biting me. So, uh, I, te I tested that tick. And in that case, uh, I did decide to take antibiotics prophylactically, right? Uh, because I wasn't taking the steps necessary to protect myself in a tick endemic community. And because I, um, because I, I did find the tick and because I, because I, um, I wasn't prophylactically protecting myself the way I am now, I decided that I was going to take the, the antibiotics, but it gave me as a patient information that I needed to make a decision myself with my doctor, right? Now, I do know that, that the research shows that a tick could harbor up to 200 different microbes. And when we're testing a tick, at most, we're only te testing 19. So that leaves 
you know, at least a hundred and a hundred and what is it? 81 <laughs> microbes that that tick could be harboring that we're not even capable of testing. But it is a data point for me in the short term to decide whether or not I'm going to take antibiotics. Uh, and in that case, I did. And in the long term, it gives me information about what I could be harboring so that if I become symptomatic, what other steps I could take, which is what you've outlined. Now, with the most recent tick bite that I suffered, I, I just I did test that tick as well. But in that case, I did not take antibiotics. And the reason I didn't take antibiotics is because I now am more Lyme, uh, I, I am now more Lyme educated. And because I am taking the restore kit and I am prophylactically protecting myself and wanting and, 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 and enhancing my immune protections as a result of the herbal protocol that I'm taking, I decided rather than rather than um, taking antibiotics that time, what I did is I, I actually just doubled the restore kit and I went from 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 the the base level of restore that I was taking to a to a um, a greater level of the restore kit, and I believe because of the prophylactic protections, because I was generally healthy, and because I was then adding to um, you know the 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 treatment, that I was not going to use antibiotics. So it gave me as a patient information that allowed me to make a different decision in consultation with the doctors I was working with. So my argument is that we should be testing our ticks. We should be taking the information, but we certainly shouldn't believe either we understand all of the microbes that are in us, or we understand how those microbes are interacting with the rest of the microbes we're harboring and our genetic predisposition and the environmental issues. But it's just a data point that I think is important for a patient to have. And I'd like your reaction to that before Matt takes you into the human testing. I would do the same. Exactly correct. When you said this, uh, that was exactly my word. I said, okay, um, infectivity, the pathogen meets immunity every time. It's always the same. You know, during SARS-CoV-2, we learned that, <laughs> but it was clear. You have an immune system. If your immune system is weak, um, the pathogen can hit you down. But um, if you have a strong immune system and you do something, it's better vitamin C, whatever, high dose, D, K1, K2. Um, you can do a lot about this, but it's no guarantee, okay? Because SARS-CoV-2 or Borrelia burgdorferi can be very aggressive to you. So if you feel symptoms, symptomatic, please test yourself with a antibody test or early sport in a from gamma release assay. And then you know, is it active or not active? And then you can treat. But I would not use antibiotics without probiotics, without immune uh, stimulation. This is antibiotics like chemotherapies and you make you multi-resist. So I think CDC is right in some points, not too much antibiotics. You have antibiotics in the chicken, you eat up a lot of antibiotics the whole day. So um, also organic foods can be problematic sometimes. So um, your lifestyle and what we forgot a little in the discussion, stress, 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 stress. Okay. All of these infections are stress triggered, all of these infections. So as an example, if you had a surgery, if you have a chemotherapy, where I worked, the patient extremely uh, low with the immune system. Stress makes it, you know, stress, 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 adrenaline, cort uh, cortisol, all of these problems, huh? dopamine, you have this stress. And who is not stressed, you would say now, okay? Um, and age, 
stress and age, you know, over 60 immune system going down, natural immunity is going down, natural killer cells. So what I could tell you, you should do immune profile. You should check your CD19 cells if they're quite good. These are chronic markers. It's, uh, and then you need to work on it. If your CD19 cells are not good, your humoral immune system is not good. If your CD3 cells, and this is what I see daily, uh, we have so many also young people with so bad CD3 cells. It's horrible. This is a general T-lymphocyte marker for, it's a flow cytometry. So they are so weak and we need to treat the T-cells, bring them, they're looking like HIV patients, they have AIDS, but they don't have AIDS. You know, this is the model we have. The natural killer cells are also bad. Uh, we need to support this. They don't know that. Uh, we discuss daily, uh, every day, is it now a pre-existing, as you mentioned, condition or a longer existing condition? Or is it new? Is it fresh? Uh, so we don't know, we, but we, it's an easy test, not, ex not expensive test your immune system. This is what I postulated also during SARS-CoV-2, the same. I said, test the patient uh, before vaccination, test them during the COVID crisis. How good is your immune system? We, we never did this, you know, immune globulins. Do you have enough immune globulins? Do you have IgG subclass deficiencies, IgG one and three is done from um, uh, Lyme disease as an example. So IVIG could help some patients also with Bartonella and so. We need to know that, you know, we need to know about immune system and coming back to the inflammation, the third eye. Um, I cannot see your skin actually, but maybe uh, you have an uh, inflamed skin. You have some uh, yeah, cold hands, cold fingers, uh, uh, no oxygen um, in your body. You have uh, feel fatigue sometimes, you know, we have a dry skin, the perfusion is not good and you're young. So this can be also a sign of an underlying silent carrier, silent inflammation. We need to know that the third eye. Otherwise, we cannot uh, do a good way, like you described that, also inflammation. So what can you do? Anti-inflammatory diet, uh, we name it basic good water, no plastics, whatever. There's a lot of good nutrition you can do. Uh, we learned also during <laughs> Corona crisis, we learned a lot about the anti-inflammatory part. You can also do some basic remedies for you in the water to make you basic, basic, basic. But this is not solving your perfusion. And some of us, uh, we uh, eat too much cholesterol, uh, too much fat. So the nutrition plays to me, the most important role in the inflammation of our body. So what we eat up, the toxins, not just the toxins, the microplastics, what we eat up um, is coming to our body and then we cannot detox. And all of these infections, they block the lymphatic system. So the lymph nodes sometimes are swollen. The virus is coming to that, the parasites coming. We cannot detox all of these proteins coming out. So what I am saying, uh, saying now, we need also detox. We need, need something for the liver to help our liver, which is the main origin. Don't drink alcohol, no alcoholics, nothing. Um, so we can do a lot in our lifestyle, you know, if we avoid some things and we can do prophylactically and this will help you. It's no guarantee, but it's a help as it was during COVID crisis, the same model. So Dr. Armin, let's continue to talk about testing the patient. And I, you know, my general observation so far has been if I were to go tell my doctor, I think I have Lyme disease and he would run a test for me, it might be the two-tier test. It might just be the ELISA test. But really what I'm looking for is the infection. It's one of the eyes on the three prongs of chronic illness or chronic Lyme disease. And it's not only just, it's not all infection. It's just the one strain of Lyme disease. So I'm getting tested for one 
particular type of infection, not other infections. At Armin Labs, it sounds like you do a broad spectrum of infections, basically as far as we can with modern science and technology, but you're also looking for inflammatory markers and immune dysfunction markers as well. So you're, you're running the whole gamut of testing for the three eyes, infection, all of them. And, and infection you, you brilliantly outlined before is I think the five classes are bacteria, virus, parasites, yeast, and mold, right? So you're looking for all those five subclasses of infection not only just, you know, different species of Lyme. Then you're looking at inflammatory markers and immune dysfunction. So can you tell us specifically what tests you offer at Armin Labs? And if we were to refer somebody to you and John Smith comes up to Dr. Armin and says, I'm chronically ill, I'm bed bound, I've been sick for 10 years, I got diagnosed with Lyme disease, I'm not getting better, I need to know what's going on in my body. What kind of testing would you recommend for that person that is offered at Armin Labs? I would not recommend the ELISA and the Western plots and immunoplots. <laughs> Forget them. Spare the money. It's nonsense. It's useless. Um, if you have chronic, do the TICPLEX basic. This is a test for persistiform antibodies for the round bodies intracellular. Um, all tests I mentioned now, they are CE certified, IVD registered. Most of them are accredited, also CIP, Clinical American Pathologist accredited, so the quality is perfect. Um, but do the TICPLEX basic for persistent forms. This helps you wonderful. If you have IgM persisters and all main subspecies inside of celiae, gariniae, and uh, sensu stricto, um, so you can see that if you have IgM, IgG persisters or not, and this closing the gap, uh, what we had with this negative false immunoplots, we have that still the problem, and Western blots, so we can close that gap up to 99%, not 100%, but 99, 98%. So this is a TH2 system. Do the TICPLEX, affordable test, not expensive. Um, for the TH1 system, this is where I came from my multiple sclerosis patient uh, 18 years ago. You do the ELI spot. This is an interferon gamma release assay. It's a cytokine release assay, standardized. I, we, did, we, do, we did a lot also for SARS-CoV-2 and for vaccinated patients for viruses and so on. This is a, a really good method. And the, this ILI spot, to mention that, is 20 to 200 fold more sensitive than ELISA and, uh, or immunoplot. So that's nonsense doing immunoplots in chronic. But now you could say, okay, if I have now a TH1 suppression, I have really chronic TH2 dominant. TH2 dominant means you produce more antibodies after a while, autoimmune, Hashimoto's, Sjögren, rheumatoid arthritis, fibromyalgia, ANA titer. After a while, you lose your TH1 capacity. You lose the ELI spot. You lose the natural killer cells. This is around 15% of the chronic patients suffering from that. Then you produce more antibodies. You, you switch, this is not good, this is not good. If you find antibodies, it's always not good. Um, it's better to have a strong cellular immune system because this is a balanced TH1, TH2, but you're sick, okay? The immunology is, uh, needs a balance, but if you have symptoms, you need to treat. If you don't have symptoms, you keep an eye on this TH1, TH2 immune defense. We have the same with um, interferon gamma release um, with the SARS-CoV-2 vaccinated and the long COVID patients. We see also um, that they produce interferon gamma still and they have long COVID. So this is the virus persistency of the S protein, the spike protein as an example. It's not for today, but just to mention you also the same test is, is used for long COVID in the same principle to check if it's still active 
some uh, something going on in your immune system, Th1, Th2. Uh, this is the perfect uh, duo. You have the, uh, the Tickplex basic for the persisters, round bodies intracellular, IgG, IgM, and the pleomorphic is also in that uh, for the whole spirochet. So you have six tests for one super price, <laughs> I would say. And uh, you have not just take, uh, talk about the price, but I know a lot of patients have money issues and now energy crisis. We need to make it a more affordable. That's one also of my messages, my aims. And also the TH2 system. Um, this is the Interfon Gamma release. So we have a new test now. It's named the iSpot, which can, uh, by the interleukin 2, it's ca it came uh, up with the SARS-CoV-2 crisis also to check if the patient switched, uh, is switching from TH1 uh, uh, Interfon in Gamma maybe to TH2. So we can find also there an information. Um, TH1, TH2, Interfon Gamma release assay. I think this is what you can do from this side. And now we come to immunology. Um, you have two tests, two tests. You can find, I would say, 99% of the patients. We see if they have active Lyme on TH1, TH2 persister forms or both or not. So, and we can work on that. We can bring them back into balance, produce more TH1 during Herxheimer's as an example. So we can monitor the patients very well. In the, in the final end, it's not allowed to have ILISPOT positive, uh, so two months after successful therapies. And also the antibodies are allowed, but just IgG and not overboosted, you know, not overboosting with the risk of autoimmune disorders. This really comp complex, I know that, but I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a short uh, description of that. Um, and for the immune system, uh, I came from this CD57 cells from Ray Stricker. Ray Stricker did this study in 2000, uh, 2000 it was, with Winger. And Joe Boroskan did a, a little case report after that, I think so. And then they stopped all signs on the CD57 and natural killer cells. Um, and if they are low, you have for sure a chronic bacterial infection. The CD57 natural killer cells are not specific for Lyme. They are also low in Rickettsia, Bartonella, Streptococcus, Klebsiella, uh, Bartonella. So, but they are good uh, also marker for therapists um, the net to treat the natural killer cells. And by this, it's, it's a short panel, CD3 cells, CD19 cells, CD56 natural killer cells, CD57 cells. So we can have a great look is there chronic viral infection? Is there chronic parasitical infection? Is there chronic uh, Lyme, Borrelia infection? So we get a lot of information from an easy panel, from a flow cytometry, which is also certified IVD rigid, whatever. So that's comparable. It's, it's a state of art diagnostics. And by this, I think we have a good uh, chance to uh, build the immune dysfunction by this uh, short panel. And now the inflammatory part, inflammation that uh, it's a little more complicated, I know. So we can check interferon gamma, which is done with the ELISPOT as it's interferon gamma release. You see it's overproduction. This we can do the TNF alpha we are doing. We do the interleukin six uh, also. Um, we cannot do all of the cytokines. You know, we need good tests. Um, we can do the run test 
practice test, uh, a chemokine, which is also for the dentists important, you know, for, for this NICO and the where they uh, did the surgery on that, because a lot of these uh, teeth problems coming from infections for sure. Um, and uh, dentists don't know about that, most of them. Some groups are knowing. Um, but these three, uh, it's not so, uh, all of this is not so expensive. And what I want to do a little cheaper for the patients, because we, I, my motto is to test more, uh, to give more the chance and to invest more in therapies. It's not that laboratories should make all of the money politically and do high price tests for the investors or so. That doesn't make sense. You know, we need to give the patient a chance. And uh, if you have a test for IgG, that doesn't mean that you have active infection. Uh, in the Tickplex, if you have the IgM, yes, you have an active infection for sure with persistent forms. I'm a fan of the IgA antibodies. As you know, we don't have it for Lyme disease, but they will be developed, although in the salivary test, uh, coming a lot of these new models, new ideas, uh, but still do the Tickplex basic, do the CD37 cells and do the, um, do the uh, Illispot and then you know what it is. So what I really like about this is that your testing hits all the three eyes, infection, inflammation, and immune dysfunction, but it also looks at broad to specific. So depending on you know, the patient and what they have going on, it's going to give them an entire data set about their personalized health. So you mentioned that it can tell, you know, based on, based on certain tests, we can determine, is it a chronic bacterial infection? Is it a chronic viral infection? Do you have active Lyme, right? And it's, and it's, and it's hundreds of up to hundreds of times more sensitive than standardized testing we, we have here in the States. The, you mentioned it's, it's affordable, but the part I, I guess I, I have a question on is a lot of doctors here in America don't like using private labs and, and, or they don't know how to, right? So if somebody's listening to this podcast and they're in America or the UK or Canada or Mexico, or, you know, even Germany, how, how can they partner with their doctors to get an Armin labs test? Because so much of this, as you noted, is so detailed and so advanced. We really need to partner with a practitioner and Armin labs to get the appropriate testing and then to analyze the results because the average Lyme patient isn't going to be able to analyze the results and need to partner with a practitioner to do that. So how do you, most of your, your patients work with a doctor to get their blood tested overseas in Germany? It's no problem to send samples from all over the world. We had it also during SARS-CoV-2. We did PCR also for some patients in Australia. So it's not the problem to send the samples. It's uh, logistics. It's perfectly working from some countries are difficult, South America, but we're also solving that. Um, uh, it's a little time critical to send that, but it's easy to send. Um, but you're absolutely correct. Um, we, could, we have special tubes. Maybe we mentioned that. Uh, you cannot send just the centrifuge tube it's a it's something special and then we come to the point not every laboratory can do that also quest labcor they will establish some experts on a level it's handmade a lot of this it's not the it's not the clinical chemistry we are doing with blood counts or so it's 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 a really complex thing you need good uh, team members it's manual uh, we are now more automating some methods but it, it's really complex what we are doing uh, and we have special tubes and um, time critical free of any cost we send the tubes around the world 
world, the test kits, and then you can send them back with a UN declaration. It's no problem with the logistics. We are very fast. We do it within two, three days. You have the results and we do it in cloud systems. And so protection, data protection needs to be guaranteed. Germany is leading in this point, I would say, in the world or Europe. Meanwhile, America also, but we are also on the forefront there. Uh, so you can send and but it's not just to uh, how do you do a test selection? That's a, uh, how do you know which test to order? Hmm? And a lot of doctors don't know simply. And uh, I do a lot of webinars. I, I, I do uh, Zoom calls, uh, uh, WhatsApp talks with them, I, I, but they learn quickly. It's a step-by-step, drop, drop by drop, but they learn, 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 learn. And it's good. And after you get the results, you need also some help. It's, it's not just doing results, you know? Um, so what, what I'm doing, and I have a parasitologist and infectious disease expert also in my laboratory is very good in parasites. Um, so we need also um, to, to educate with the results to say, what does that mean now? And what I, again, what we need to correlate the laboratory test results with the symptoms and the differentials, okay? You cannot say everything is now Lyme, so my test is now negative. So I would say yeah, you, this patient maybe had Lyme, but it's not active. So I look for a different reason. And now we have the next challenge. <laughs> we need to learn about all of these different infections, Yersinia, Campylobacter, Salmonella, uh, CMV, human CMV, in the colitis group, very important now. Uh, uh, these entrotropic viruses, uh, the cardiotropic viruses, uh, the parasite. This is a chapter. I'm not so the expert for that, but I have a parasitologist. He's, he knows everything about that, but we don't have all tests for that, for sure. We have toxocaracanis, antibodies, cheap tests, which has to do with the dogs. So we have so many good toxoplasmosis is also with the cats. The cats and the dogs, let me say that since they are so important in the transmission of pathogens. You cannot imagine that in the stool and the people eat up the parasites without knowing that and then they think um, they have Lyme disease but it's a Lyme disease it's a toxocariasis neuropsychiatric symptoms autism you know this is very complex thing or they have additionally Lyme, Lyme plus, you know, Lyme plus, we could also say not to exclude the Lyme community from that. Um, we need to differentiate. If we don't differentiate, we got lost in the system. But the teaching books, again, coming back to the point differentials, if you go in the teaching books, they don't have, uh, they didn't have looked at multiple infections. All of the teaching books are just uh, looked for one infection. Also in long COVID, they checked just for chlamydia pneumonia infection, reactivation, but not for mycoplasma at the same time, not for Coxsackie virus, not for varicella. You know, we have a chronic multiple thing also in the, all of this paperwork. It's all shit. It's bullshit. You can throw away all of these guidelines, all of these studies, but they never looked at chronic multiple infection, what, what L. McDonald uh, told you, it's absolutely correct. Uh, we have polymicrobial thing, how you want to name it. Uh, nobody checked that, you know, all of the studies are bullshit in my opinion. So we need to include, exclude in the new studies to say, this is really a Lyme symptom, this Bartonella symptom, who can tell you, a small lymph node can be everything. Bartonella is doing, also viruses doing, parasites doing, you cannot differentiate, you could say everything is Lyme, that's not correct. So we need to differentiate and um, this is the clinical differential that we need to get better 
also in the teaching books. Some say, I mean, you write a teaching book about that. Okay, maybe in my last phase of my career, I will do something like that because a lot is in my brain. We need artificial intelligence. You can build up a lot in this. Uh, if you patient writing in a, in a system, I have this, this, this symptom. The computer system is, is telling you with uh, this probability you are suffering from this, 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 you know, in a ranking or so. Uh, so the medical brain is working like that. And uh, this is hard to educate doctors. Also, you know, uh, it's for me a full-time job, uh, to, uh, 18 hours a day. So every day uh, for years, for 20 years, and um, you cannot, uh, and I, I feel somehow lost in the whole system because I don't know. Also, a lot of points I'm, I'm not satisfied. They say, you know a lot. And I say, no, I, I'm the beginning of, of learning every day, new studies, new paper with a fibromyalgia. Never knew about that. Chlamydia with a heart rhythm issues. Nobody described that, you know, in the fibromyalgia group. We need to look more for the polymicrobials and the association with it or the reason for it. And then we are, we never give up for sure. We are an absolute good track. I think all together with your support, bringing the consciousness with a tick boot camp, with the different experts interdisciplinary, uh, we are fully booked, you know, everybody's busy all of us so we are successful we help the patients we know that we cannot help everybody we cannot rescue everybody but we have solutions the others don't have that makes them aggressive there's a lot of politics we need to be careful under the radar so this is uh, a mission but the mission is not impossible but it's it's now switching so dr armin i i can't thank you enough for taking time out of your really busy schedule to uh talk with me and matt we we uh we are fascinated by your work we are appreciative by, of all the work that you're doing and uh and we really want to stay in touch with you so that we can continue to learn more uh about what you're working on and what other opportunities you're offering to folks in the Lyme community to not only learn about uh what options they have available to them but what what uh, testing tools you are developing and you're continuing to develop um, at an affordable rate for folks in the, in the community. Yes, thank you. Maybe I forgot one point. What the therapist, and I know patients rich like you, you mentioned already, I take this remedy, I take this prophylactically. The doctors are also helpless in therapy options. They don't know what to use in which infection, which inflammation, you know. So this also challenge, we need to work on that. How can we treat the viruses? When I started with this opportunistic viruses, EBV reactivation, enduring or CMV, it came later on in the, in the scientific paperwork out. Uh, as an example, EBV, Epstein-Barr virus, is clearly associated with multiple sclerosis, clearly. But this group didn't look for Lyme disease, you know, they, they just looked for EBV infections. Um, right. So you cannot say, you know, that's, that's the point. But what we see, um, it's, it's good that this is happening, but we need also a good education or some more options uh, for therapists, what to do. And, and it's not so easy, you know. Um, I know there are different uh, experts also on your panel uh, talking. Um, for me, it's not clear what, what we could do for the wonder pill doesn't exist. So we need individual therapies and maybe a message to that. If I can tell you something, because I have 1000 therapists around the world sending me samples from everywhere. 
Um, what I can tell you nowadays, so every therapist is the best one. This is a, should be a good word to motivate all of the therapists, uh, but we need to learn from each other and um, we need to develop um, more protocols, more, more natural products, more herbal products. And from my history, what was a good, uh, good teaching book to me was also the Stephen Puner book for herbal antivirals. And I learned a lot of about this and um, the herbs will play important role, the transfer factors in the TH, TH1, TH2, the immune boosters, the nutritional aspects, the detox aspects, the genetical aspects, as you mentioned. So it's, it's a complex thing. And we need also to find a community, a baseline uh, to find all of us together. That makes it complicated because everybody's an expert in this field, but uh, we need to find solutions and affordable solutions also for therapies. And maybe one last sentence um, for patients. Um, if you don't come forward with a therapy one, two months, I, I talked with Joe Boroscano years ago in Amsterdam about that. Maybe your concept is not the best. Uh, you need to rethink your concept. Don't uh, don't lose too much time in taking, as an example, antibiotics, antibiotics, antibiotics. And you say, I come into my one-way street with a dead end. You need to rethink. Uh, maybe it's a different thing you're suffering from, additional thing. And you need to diagnose and treat this. And uh, not just to say, I, I'm doing now ozone therapies or uh, hyperbaric therapies for 10 years. So that doesn't bring us forward. We need to be more flexible. And we need to change also therapists to say, okay, one, two months therapist, you tried with this patient, um, you, you did microimmune therapy or IHHT therapy, but it failed or aphorasis. Um, you go to different therapists. We need to uh, exchange the patients also, you know, to, for the benefit um, to say, uh, I, I'm up, or maybe you ask your, your therapist neighbor for some advice or you discuss uh, such cases to come forward. This would be also one of, one of my uh, hard aspects uh, for the future um, so that the patient, the longer the infection is, exists, um, the harder is the damage afterwards. Well, thank you. I, I, I think we here at Tech Bootcamp certainly uh, will, will agree with everything you just said there. We certainly believe in open source models. We certainly believe in making sure that we're pivoting from therapy to therapy and from coach to coach and from doctor to doctor so that we have, we have a, a, a full spectrum of support when we're on this journey and, and a great place to start with, um, with that full spectrum approach would be at Arm and Lamb. So we can't thank you enough for the great work that you're doing. You're really blessing uh, this community of people who are suffering from Lyme disease with, with a number of different um, testing and treatment options that would not be available, but for uh, the brilliant work you're doing and your lab is doing. So we can't thank you enough for the great work that you're doing, Dr. Armin. Thank you very much. We never give up and our mission is possible.